Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Neo Kobe Pizza, the only gaming podcast that floats in soup. Joining me today is a gentleman who, if you followed along with the Die Hard Gamecast, should require no introduction. Uh, the host of said podcast, Mr. Sean Madsen. How you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Now that life has afforded you a little bit of time such that we can sit down and record one of these together, we had bounced a couple of ideas back and forth, and the one that seemed like it had the most meat to it was the idea of discussing localization, basically. Yeah, uh, Mark and I were passing ideas back and forth. We thought maybe, given my uh, prior history with Square Enix and Square Subtitles and uh, my fandom of Final Fantasy, they thought maybe we could make a discussion topic out of something with that. And um, eventually we kind of circled around to the idea of localization in general, uh, simply because it's something that gets talked about a lot lately uh, through forums and social media and stuff, what with um, all the niche games that get localized and um, people's expectations that come from those, uh, such as things like, you know, dubs versus subs, you know, English versus Japanese, you know, dialogue, things like censorship versus, you know, cut content, fitting the needs of ESRB, just, just all of those things I... I thought, and Mark agreed, that would make a pretty healthy uh, topic of discussion. I mean, we both are kind of follow the niche game scene quite a quite a bit, uh, you know, with Xseed and uh, NIS and some of those, and um, we just thought it'd be a relevant discussion. So here we are. Yeah, and the thing that kind of struck me as a good as good a place to start and probably base most of the conversation around is any is. The big conversation that has been dominating a lot of circles in social media, which is the conflict between the ideas of direct translations versus localization. A lot of Japanese games at this point, when they're brought to the U.S., are brought to the U.S. with the idea in mind that the content creators are going to try and make the game as accessible to the U.S. marketplace as possible to try and guarantee the maximum amount of purchases. Back in the 90s, and even in the 80s, this wasn't a big deal. But in this day and age, it's becoming a bit of a problem to a certain subset of gamers who are advocating for what can basically be described as direct translations. Direct translations can be assumed to take the idea of a game and convert it more or less completely intact from one language to the next as sort of a one-to-one -one translation or as close to one as you're going to possibly get while still leaving all of the core concepts, discussions, elements, and so on intact. And if there's voice work, presumably offering exclusively the Japanese voice or at the very least the option for the Japanese voice. A really good example of this sort of thing would probably be something like Persona 4. If you've not played that game, there are several instances where they ask you to do things or know things that really only a Japanese person would know. For example, how do you cook this traditional Japanese dish that you've never fucking heard of because you live in fucking Hoboken, New Jersey, or whatever? Or, hey, answer this question about Japanese history and Japanese society in, in some capacity or another, and, and do it ex with the correct answer that we would be looking for from somebody from Japan. It's very specifically Japanese. It is in no way converted for the English reader, the English speaker. You 
kind of have to know about Japanese history, about Japanese foodstuffs, or go by a guide in order to be able to understand what in the holy blue hell they're even talking about. On the other hand, there's localization, which most of you have probably encountered in some form or fashion, where you take one of those sorts of games and you convert it to the location that you are translating it for. So you would try to update the content for an American audience. You would try to update the content for a British audience. You would try to update the content for a Brazilian audience, whatever. You would change the dialogue and change the conversations and change the language in such a way so that the game is accessible to those people. The most extreme examples of those would include only location-specific dialogue and speech. So, for example, the Japanese dialogue would be removed entirely, and language for your own locale would be included. A perfect example of this that's more modern, Phoenix Wright. You've seen that they, within the confines of the game, especially in the early games, discuss how they are based out of, I want to say, Hollywood, California? I don't remember where that's located exactly. I'm not sure. Yeah, but they, they're definitely in the United States, and while the games get a bit more ridiculous as things go on, where they have to explain all of these decidedly Japanese things that they're dealing with in the future of this particular world, they still keep very strictly to the idea that Phoenix Wright is based out of the U.S., and everything he interacts with, everything he does, etc., has some type of analog in the U.S., or is excused for some weird reason or another. There's also the matter of content editing, as you had mentioned, with the idea between censorship versus content cutting, where when a game is brought to another locale, they'll translate, and they'll also cut out specific things that either might not necessarily work for the location, or might cause the game to get rated higher than they might want. And this discussion has been all over the place recently, with the costume changes in Tokyo Mirage sessions, uh, dialogue changes in Fire Emblem Fates, and the reduction of the blood effects in God Eater 2 when you bite into specific monsters with your God Arc. What's interesting about that, too, is the uh, upcoming Berserk Dynasty Warriors game. They're thinking about making the Western version more violent than what the Japanese folks got, which is almost unheard of. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, there are certain ways in which we deal with violence differently from how the Japanese markets uh, deal with violence. I don't know how you would necessarily get away with it, but I think that beyond a certain point, maybe the Japanese markets eventually rate their stuff AO if it gets too violent, whereas in the Western market, there's probably a harder line they have to cross for that sort of thing. Again, I mean... It took a lot for them to get Manhunt to a point where it wasn't um, it wasn't M-rated anymore. Although on the flip side, if if the game contains any of the uh, sexual content that the uh, anime and or manga contains, then that stuff would probably end up getting dropped in its place. Oh yeah, no, like there's gonna be a lot of dependent upon how they choose to handle that. There's probably gonna be a lot of content that's cut out of that game especially if they try to do an accurate translation from the page to the game. But then again, I would imagine they'll probably treat it like it's going to be at least somewhat a television-style anime, 
And they'll probably at least cut some of the sexuality out. Like, there'll still be sexualization, but, you know, there won't be straight-up nipples everywhere. I just thought it was interesting of the eight characters that they're going to include. They chose one that's only claim to fame, uh, so to speak, is that he rapes an entire village before doing battle with Guts and getting slaughtered. So, strange choice in casting there, but it'll be interesting to see how they portray that in the game. I mean, to be fair... Square Enix included a character in the first Dragon Guard who was a known paterast, and that didn't get them an AO. So I imagine saying that you raped a whole bunch of people might not be enough to get that rank up. So long as they're not portraying him actually raping people on the screen, I think it'll probably be alright. Well, when they localized Dragon Guard, it's interesting they brought that up, that they removed a lot of the references to some of the darker material that you're mentioning. I mean, that's also a fair point. I guess... After all of that, probably the core thesis of this particular discussion would be, are localization and content editing bad? Now, me personally, I would probably argue that in some cases it can be a bad thing, but by and large, no, we probably need localization and content editing. In some cases, if for no other reason than to ensure that you aren't making your game too impenetrable for anybody who isn't, and I kind of hate to use the term, but let's be honest here, a weeb. <laughs> I mean, I love Persona 4, don't get me wrong, but I could definitely have done without some of the decidedly Japanese recipes that you had to prepare in order to make friends with people. Without a guide, it would have required a lot of saving and reloading, and that's just not a good use of anyone's time, really. Yeah, I guess it depends on what it is. I mean, if we're talking about... Let's go to Criminal Girls as a recent example. Um, NIS posts on the website with the um, upcoming Criminal Girls 2 that they had to edit some of the content uh, of that game to not get slapped with an adults-only rating uh, when they bring it to Western audiences. And they basically flat out said, like, you know, we can't afford to resubmit this game to the ESRB. Uh, and we took suggestions from them from things that probably should be changed in order to get a mature rating and be able to sell this product at all. Something like that doesn't bother me. If it's a, a choice between get it in this form or not get it at all, then it's like fine. Though on the flip side, considering the audience that that game is for, you know, editing is probably not the best mood because, you know, think about what the game is that you're selling. I haven't dabbled too much with Criminal Girls. I know you have, Mark, but uh, it's essentially like a dungeon crawler where you spank prison girls. That, while a little reductive, is basically accurate. The basic gist of the game is that all of these girls died young uh, and kind of qualified for hell, but not a lot qualified for hell. So you're taking them through a redemption program to try and get them to a point where they can be reincarnated and given another shot at maybe not going to hell. The key element here is that in order to get them to redemption, you partially have to take them through the different dungeons that you're exposed to and have them battle in combat to get higher levels and learn to work together as a team. But you also have to take them to respite spots where you discipline them in various different ways. Such as, you know, spanking them, pouring water on them, stuff having to do with, like, French ticklers and shit. It, it's all very sexual torture. 
and they make no bones about that. Uh, the original game had to be edited a bit in that they had to add in a bit more pink fog because the girls were all quite clearly presented as underage uh, and were in various compromising positions and compromising outfits during this period. And they also had to remove all of the audio from the torture sessions that generally had them, you know, squealing in various degrees of pain slash pleasure during the act in order to get it to a point where it was reasonably able to be an M-rated game. There's a lot more involved in the combat, but that's not really relevant to the topic of having to cut content from the game. So just rest assured, even if you're willing to overlook that sort of content or you like that sort of content, it may not necessarily be a game for you mechanically, but the key point of the conversation is more about how, you know, you're basically molesting teenage girls in order to get them to see the light and stop being bad people. So I guess I guess basically you're a priest. I don't know. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I guess for me it's a matter of does the content that they change impact the overall message or gameplay of the game? Uh, and to look at some of the recent examples that you brought up towards the beginning, like Tokyo Mirage Sessions, for example, they modified some of the costumes to be a little bit less risque because uh, the characters in question were underage. And quite honestly, uh, what they changed them to, I thought looked better than what they had before looking at comparison shots. Uh, minus one example, there was some kind of uh, wedding dress outfit Oh yeah, that thing. was terrible. That was awful. And and the way they edited just looked wrong. I don't know. Because uh, they tried to like doctor it during like the anime sequence and it just looked weird. But... In either case, it didn't impact the story at all. Uh, it didn't make the game any less enjoyable. Um, and the way I look at it, if that's what it took to get the game localized in the hands of more people, then I'm okay with it. The The change that they made in that instance personally didn't bother me. Well, let's actually, let's actually table Tokyo Mirage Sessions for a second. I do want to come back to that. But okay. where I actually want to start with this is a little bit further back. I don't know exactly how much exposure you've had to it, because we are not that far apart in age, but you are a few years younger than I am. But back during the 80s and the early 90s, content editing was not really a big deal unless there was straight-up nudity in your games. So we saw games come out in the U.S. like fucking Custer's Revenge and Beat 'em and Eat'em. And these were, you know, like, very poorly released games that you basically just found at maybe a few adult-oriented type stores, but they were games that were released for the Atari. And then there was, I think, one or two adult-themed games that made it past Nintendo's sensors and got onto the NES. But there wasn't really an ESRB telling you what you could and couldn't do at that point. So, you know, games like Technocop and Splatterhouse had shit exploding everywhere, and nobody said anything about it. But once the ESRB came into play, you started to see some content edits for tone. And then you would also start to see companies who saw that games were developing narratively and saw that straight text translations were no longer going to work try to put a little bit of their own personality in there. 
And it's not the worst idea, right? I mean, we can't have another zero wing running around at this point. And trying to translate something directly might be a bit of a nightmare. So you know what? Maybe put some of your own personality in that game. And then there's working designs. <laughs> now, I love Vic Ireland to a point. I think he's a good enough guy. And we've had discussions about working designs and their impact on the marketplace uh, during my podcast with Robert Hubbs. But it's worth noting that while working designs did bring us a lot of great games that we would not have been able to play otherwise, they also kind of put their dick in the translations a little bit. I don't know. Have you have you played any of the old working designs RPGs on the Sega CD or on the PlayStation 1? Most of them, yeah. Okay. So you remember that there were goofy little translation things put in talking about modern pop culture stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I remember the some of the weirdest ones were uh, playing Albert Odyssey on the Sega Saturn, where I think he made, like, jokes about, like, I want to say it had something to do with, like, women learning to drive or something like that, and I was like, oh boy. Wow. Yeah, no, I I remember playing Vi on the Sega CD, and I want to say that there was an MC Hammer joke in there somewhere for some shit-awful reason. Probably. And and there were there were a lot of jokes that clearly were meant to appeal to a Western audience at the time. I would imagine that the for Vi in particular, those translation elements are probably not there in the, I want to say, iOS version that they released. But if you can dig up a copy of the Sega CD version, that's that's some shit. That is some shit right there. Yeah, the iOS version's a completely different translation. A lot of the character names are different, too. That's not really a surprise. It's Names would often be changed in these sorts of localizations to make them make more sense, because... Again, at that point, most 8, 10, 12, 14-year-olds probably had no real exposure to the Japanese marketplace. The internet was, to say in its infancy, would be a bit of an understatement. And you didn't, you didn't have that sort of exposure to Japanese games, to Japanese names, to Japanese concepts that you might have had in 2000 or 2010. So you would just change stuff to make it make more sense for the American audience. And in Working Design's case, they would fill it full of ridiculous jokes and pop culture references that, in some cases, actively undermined what the game was trying to do. I mean, the games were certainly still great enough that they were well worth playing and they were well worth having. But yep. you can kind of sort of understand why some people would have taken umbrage with the way Working Designs chose to do their translations. And now that their uh, Gaijin works, even some of the modern stuff that they do gets treated much the same way the recently done uh summon night five that came out on the psp i i didn't play through the whole thing but i played through part of it and like it only took a couple mentions of phrases like turdnado to make me go yep some things never change oh my god then of course there's the idea of cutting content or just completely changing stuff around in a more direct fashion Continuing off of the idea of what Working Designs did, let's go to Persona for a second, specifically the original one. Did you play the original PS1 Persona? I didn't play the original on PS1. I played the PSP version, but I'm aware of what some of the changes were that were made. Yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot. Including that whole Snow Queen quest that got, basically half the game that got chopped out, and then uh, how they changed, like, some of the characters' racial features and... 
Yeah, the, 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 the Snow Queen one is more of a case of cutting content, which I think was done partially because it was a lot of translation work, but probably also because that was a very specific Japanese legend, and I'm imagining Atlas USA said, U.S. gamers aren't going to know what the fuck this is. Cut it! But then there was, yeah, all of the characters' nationalities were changed. I don't think any of them were left as being Asian in any way. No. Uh, the main character was made into a redhead. Um, all of the other characters were made very decidedly, you know, white blonde kids. They completely changed the goofy Joker-style Yankee-esque character of Mark into a black kid. And the Garyu character, who is in the game, was just kind of made into sort of a preppy valley girl type. They just completely washed out all of the weird subculture stuff that exists exclusively in Japan and changed everybody into black or white kids. The names were all changed into more European-sounding names. The names of the locations were changed. It was pretty ridiculous. And while they didn't go quite so far as to heavily whitewash the characters in Persona 2 Eternal Punishment when that came out. It is still very confusing trying to rectify the PSP remade Innocent Sin that was released and the PlayStation 1 Eternal Punishment with one another because so many of the names are different. So you have to know that Reiji is Chris or that... Nate Nanjo is K Nanjo, etc. It's it's pretty ridiculous, like trying to rectify to trying to reconcile all of that. Mm -hmm. Especially because again, the Innocent Sin translation was more of a direct translation. So you still if you play the two back to back, you, you have to have either Hardcore Gaming 101 loaded up or a good understanding of what the purpose was in doing these translations, so that when you say, oh, you see this character, oh, this person is this person, oh, that person is that person. And I mean, it's not as bad as it could be, just because they don't have a lot of overlap between the first game and the second game, but there's enough there to make it confusing. And of course, no discussion about edited content would be complete without my favorite Sega CD game, Snatcher. The character of Katrina Gibson is 18 in the U.S. version of Snatcher. In the Japanese version, 14, which is great because you basically see her half-naked and showering, and Gillian actively harbors perverse sexual lust for her. Well, Yep. Uh, there was some other content edited to remove copyrighted characters and replace them with Konami-specific characters, which I don't really blame them for, and I don't think most people would blame them for unless you're a crazy person. Because back at that point, we liked Konami, and we didn't want to see them get sued. <laughs> There's also the numerical edits to the Final Fantasy series, where we had 1, 2, 3, and 7. Which I'm sure you can speak on just as well as anything. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the classic uh, Katie Tiedrick joke that is actually based on elements from Phoenix Wright with, Apollo, eat your hamburgers, so saith Phoenix, as he's shoveling sushi into his mouth. <laughs> so... Yeah, localization has definitely been kind of goofy. And I don't remember the term for it, but there's the 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 four kids example that comes up a lot where there's like this specific really bad fucking translation person 
who edits so many different things so that, like, guns are turned into lollipops and all this other ridiculous shit. Oh, yeah, four kids originally had the rights to One Piece, and uh, they cut so much content. Like, the character Sanji is known for always having a cigarette in his mouth, and uh, they changed that to a lollipop, as you mentioned. But, uh, yeah, they they edited out guns and things like that and uh, removed a lot of blood. And now that I think about it, the original, the original, the ocean dub of Dragon Ball Z was the same way, where not only did they cut out a lot of the, like, blood and, like, you know, characters losing limbs and things like that, but, like, some of the dialogue was changed to reflect that things weren't as bad as what was happening on screen. Like, I remember one distinct example where, you know, towards the beginning when they're fighting the Saiyans, and Nappa goes around and, like, blows up all the fighter jets and all that stuff. And uh, you can hear Tien Shin Han in the background. Oh, I see their parachutes. They're going to be okay. It's like, while I can appreciate wanting to not expose younger kids to violence, um, I don't think showing zero consequence for bad events is really much better. <laughs> yeah. Especially considering that that was also a big problem with the 1980s animes like Voltron and whatnot, where people would quote-unquote die, but wouldn't ever quote-unquote die within the confines of the anime. So it was, you know, bad people constantly got away and did whatever instead of actually suffering consequences for their actions. Yeah, I think DBZ never used the term die either. It was always, I'm going to send you to the next dimension, which was kind of true, but... I mean, the next dimension is, is presumably heaven or hell there, one would imagine. Yeah. Uh, so, with that in mind, you can you can kind of sort of see how the argument against localization would start to pan out there a bit. I can kind of sort of see that people would be upset with the idea of content being localized, content being stripped of certain elements, especially considering how many different groups of people have just magically fucked that shit up. Yeah, in the cases of those particular anime, I mean, we, we've lost entire episodes to the cutting room floor as a result of that. But the good news is those same properties were picked up by other, I guess, dubbing studios. And uh, a lot of that stuff was reinstated. Uh, new dubs were added of arguably better quality. And um, a lot of them, uh, when they release on DVD and streaming and stuff, you have the option to do the subtitles, too, if you prefer that. So... I think we've come a long way since then. Yeah, and it's it's also worth noting that a lot of content that we would have potentially missed out on is getting put back in on top of that. Like, for those who remember the original Sailor Moon anime, where they basically changed a lot of the relationships around, most notably the relationship between, I want to say Sailor Neptune and Sailor Uranus, which was more, you know, romantic in the Japanese version, and, oh, they're cousins in the U.S. version, which made it even more weird. Yeah, a bit. But they've they've fixed it for the most part, and we're we're getting to that point where things are being put back the way they're supposed to be. So yeah, again, you can see how people could point at those sorts of situations and say, "Well, this is what localizing does. This is what these sorts of things do. This is damaging the stuff that we love." So, in that light, in that perspective, you could see how localization would be bad, and you can sort of see where the censorship argument, where the, you know, don't touch my games argument comes from. But let's stop and take a minute to kind of realize or kind of discuss the fact that 
maybe localization in a way can be helpful in comparison to the confusion and weirdness that comes from direct translations. Going back to Persona 4 for a second, there are a lot of things that happen in Persona 4 that require you to have an understanding of Japanese culture and Japanese knowledge and Japanese food uh, and Japanese customs and things like that that the game is not particularly interested in trying to explain to you. While it's great that we have access to the internet, I guarantee you that not a lot of the million-plus people who have played that game are knowledgeable on the sort of stuff that is going on in Persona 4 when they jump into that game. You know, I've recommended that game to a great number of people and had them come away from it saying, well, I like the game and I like the story, but I didn't get, like, half the shit that was going on in there. Like, what the fuck is a Kotatsu? And... Why do you eat oranges when you're sitting under it? And, you know, just all of the specifically cultural shit that occupies this game. It it can be a very daunting task to try and understand what this game is trying to explain to you when it's not really giving you an understanding of its world because its world is Japan and the game was made in Japan for Japanese people who understand all of this shit. Why do you hang out by yourselves on Christmas? What is this with this Christmas cake? You know, it's it's it can be a bit much. Mm-hmm. The fact that at some point during the process, they felt that it was probably for the best to explain the Izanami and Izanagi myth during the game, probably not for the benefit of the Japanese players necessarily, because I'm sure more than a few of them already know about this, but probably for the benefit of those from outside cultures, kind of speaks to this, because it's just this... 20-minute-long sequence where you're just listening to uh, Professor Edogawa explain to you about the Izanagi and Izanami myths, which, if you're a fan of fucking Megaten in Japan, you already know about that shit anyway, because it's been the basis of, like, three different fucking Megaten games, including the very first Megaten on the NES. So this is not new for Japanese people. But... For for the Western audience, like, you're getting this big, long, involved explanation of what these myths are about and what they mean, and it's it's clearly just plot exposition to give you an understanding of what's going on, but it is just, just the most awkward, out-of-place sequence in that whole entire game that seems to exist as a way of saying, hey, person who's not from Japan, here's all the relevant cultural shit you need to know to understand the rest of this fucking game. I know uh, Steinsgate had to do that a lot, too. They had a lot of, like, jokes that only Japanese people would get. So they had, like, these bolded words pop up occasionally in uh, dialogue sequences. And then they had, like, an in-game glossary where you could, like, look it up and see what the fuck they were even talking about. And even then, you didn't always understand it. <laughs> yeah, I feel super bad for whoever had to go through and translate that uh, glossary. Or put that glossary together if some of those entries weren't there in the first place. Because Jesus Christ, that thing is supremely dense with content. It seemed like every other sentence they had some other new phrase that they had to like explain what they were talking about. Yeah, and it's it's that's not even including the stuff that needed to be explained in the game itself for its own universe. Like Elsai Kongru is not something that people say in Japan. It's specifically a phrase for this game. So you've got tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff that is exclusive to this game. And scientific concepts, like discussing string theory and things like that. 
So you're having to explain the goofy words that only exist for this game, and the science, and the goofy science that exists only in this game, and then on top of that, you're having to explain all the Japanese words and phrases. It's... That game was like an encyclopedia of data. I love it, but I can totally understand why somebody might be put off and go, what the fuck is going on here? Because it's <laughs> the first two chapters is just a whole lot of, what is this? Bloop. Oh, what is this? Bloop. Oh, what is this? Bloop. Oh, and you just have to keep referring back to and referring back to and referring back to this glossary just to have any fucking clue what the hell is going on. Yeah, and that's on top of the fact that the uh, opening to that game is a slow burn to begin with. There's also the matter to consider of games that understand that certain cultural things exist the way that they are in the country that the game is developed for that just don't bother to explain things at all because it's more or less universal. Going back to Tokyo Mirage Sessions for a second. Now, one thing that a lot of people were frustrated about was, as you had said, the costume edits. Uh, and the costume edits were certainly made because, you know, sexualizing a 17-year-old is weird. But going past that for a second, one of the things that having the characters dress in traditional costumes instead of, you know, swimsuits and whatnot does is it allows the game to skip over the concept of the gravure idol, which is a very specifically Japanese thing where models... Uh, who are of a particular degree of popularity or who are just of a particular degree of attractiveness will have picture books released for themselves or picture DVDs or video DVDs and what have you, where it's just them modeling, you know, swimsuits and costumes and whatever, almost always sexualized because that's a thing that Japanese culture is good with. They, they, by magazines and books and so on and so forth featuring these characters. And this is this is a fairly pervasive part of the culture. Let me be clear about this. Japanese wrestler Asuka in the WWE NXT Federation, um, Kana in Japan, has three different Gravore DVDs released for her in Japan. She's a serious professional and treated as one of the nastiest women's wrestlers on the planet in the U.S. And in Japan, three different books where she's half-naked for your penis pleasure. Hmm. That's a thing. And it's it's everywhere over there. Trying to explain that to a U.S. market is going to be a little difficult because the most that we get is like the Victoria's Secret catalog and the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition outside of like, you know, your Playboys and your penthouses and whatnot. So explaining that specific models can get entire picture books of them in various states of undress and that people will buy the shit out of these things is odd. And that they sing and dance on top of it. Yeah, and it's like, that's already kind of weird and impenetrable, and that's a conversation I'm going to get into in a much later podcast. But it's an odd concept all the way around, trying to deal with all of these different disparate things. Eliminating certain elements, like having to explain Graver modeling from a game, is helpful to the casual person coming into this. So just like, oh, I'm a model, I model clothes, that's fine. Having to explain the concept of Graveur modeling would probably take people out of the game a bit. So there's mm -hmm. something to be said for not doing a direct translation in some cases, because there are just some concepts that are a bit too Japanese. 
I felt like the game was enjoyable. Uh, like I said, even with the changes, like it didn't really, didn't really change the concept of the story very much. The gameplay was still solid all around. So I feel like it's cases like this, going back to, um, you know, games that came out in the nineties and stuff, you didn't have the internet to tell you, you know, these were the things that were changed. Like you wouldn't, you didn't have extensive neo gaff threads and things like that, that were like, okay, the Japanese version versus the Western version, this is what was taken out, changed, so on and so forth. Uh, so most people, when they play a lot of these games, were none the wiser. I mean, there's, you know, a few exceptions or whatever, but, you know, you play the game and you took it at face value for what it was, and you could enjoy it as an item, as is. Uh, whereas now, it's like we hear so much about games that are getting localized ahead of the game's release. Now, to the extent where, like, NIS talks about the changes even before the game comes out, like, here's what's changed, why we're doing it, and it, for a lot of people, ruins it for them before they even get a chance to play the game, like, oh, well, this has changed, no, I'm not going to buy it, where they they didn't have a chance to see if it actually mattered in the long run, you know? Uh, I feel like the internet has kind of spoiled a lot of this stuff in some respects. Well, yeah, and it's I understand the mentality of somebody who wants the game to be 100% intact to a point. But nine times out of ten, the 100% intact state of a game doesn't significantly do anything that's going to make the game a better or a worse experience, right? Like, if you're playing Persona 4, going back to that, if all of the recipes in that game had been changed to Americanized recipes... Tonally, it might be a slight difference, but it's not going to change the experience of the game on the whole. Like, okay, it's a, you're cooking Western recipes, but you're still clearly in Japan and still clearly doing whatever in Japan. That might be a little bit disconcerting for some people, but the majority of players are probably just going to go, oh, okay, this makes a little more sense for me because I might have actually prepared this fucking dish at some point in my life. And it's... I do definitely feel like we shouldn't be basing these games in the U.S. necessarily, because that's silly and weird. But there's something to be said for making concepts understandable for the Western audience, for making it so that you don't need to have Google on hand at all times when you're playing a game to understand certain things that they bring up or to understand uh, certain questions that are being asked so you answer them the correct way. Like, it shouldn't be a situation where you have to trial and error your way through something, or you have to have a guide. And if a direct translation of a game forces you into the position where you actively have to go out of your way to research the answer to a casual question that the game throws at you and will punish you for if you fail it, like, that's not better. I know that the argument is that content should be completely intact but if you're forcing the player to go and research shit or fail questions that they have no possible frame of reference to get the answer to if you think that that's better necessarily it's kind of elitist a little bit oh and by the same token too uh there's there's no such thing as a direct translation that i mean there's there's always going to be something some kind of meeting that's going to be lost from one language to the next. And on top of that, 
translating things as is reads really dry. I mean, just take anything and run it through like Google Translate. And while that's kind of an extreme example, you know, just try reading it back and just how dull, you know, something sounds. But so, I mean, there's some editing involved where they, you know, try to make it actually interesting to read. But I, I feel like if you're looking for a one-to-one -one translation, number one, that sort of thing doesn't exist. And number two, you might as well just learn the language at that point because obviously there's not anything that's going to please you. Right. And again, this isn't exclusive to anything that we've, to the things that we've brought up here. Aside from this being an important thing for the accessibility of, again, something like Persona, let's talk about Occubus Trip for a second. So, for those who did not play Occubus Trip, the game is essentially a three-dimensional beat-em-up where you punch people until their underwear explodes in a cloud of light. I'm simplifying a little bit, but that's, that's more or less what it's about. Let's just go with that. That's fair. That's fair. And you, you run around the Akihabara district just experiencing that while you're doing your quests. Now, you had mentioned that you went there for your honeymoon and that it, it matches up fairly well. Oh, yeah. I, I actually I had a newfound appreciation for that game once I got back because I was kind of exploring and the amount of detail that they put into the various locales in the game is like spot on to the extent where I like I found the hotel that I stayed at. Wow. That is that is pretty that is pretty great. I'm not going to lie. Which I, I guess it makes sense because um, uh, Acquire is based in Akihabara, so I guess it makes sense that they know that area so well. But man, it was like it was like running through Google Maps or something like at, at a street level because I, I knew just by walking through that area where things were. So in the process of translating that game, and this was a, a low-level scandal i guess we want to call it dude could even call it that yeah yeah it was it, it caused some people to get shitty we'll just go with that yeah where during the process of attempting to translate the game the localization team at xseed ran into a problem uh as chronicled in i guess pr person i don't know what she does exactly hatsu from xseed chronicled this in her tumblr blog more or less explaining that there's a couple of conversations in the game where people are talking about a specific character who is obviously a transgendered person. And Japan is not anywhere near the level of tolerance slash acceptance that the Western world has gotten to with those sorts of people. So there were several instances of slang terms, slurs, being utilized to describe this character. And XE kind of had to figure out what the fuck to do with that, because the term that was utilized is a decidedly Japanese term, new half. And that's weird. Like, that's, that's not a term that you're just going to casually use in English language, because it doesn't fucking mean anything in English language. Like, if you just put right. that in there casually, people are, what the fuck does this mean? This is not a word. This is not a word that we use. So they had to try and figure out what the word they could use there. And in the end, they ended up going with the word trap because it was the best possible word that they could come up with at the time. And people got shitty about it because, well, they used the word trap. It was just probably going to end up happening no matter what. But it's worth noting that 
had they done a direct translation of that, that would not have made a whole lot of sense. Also, and while this doesn't make it better, they that, that term is also used quite a bit in anime as well. Trap, you mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, I imagine in a lot of cases, unfortunately, you're kind of in that position where that term comes up, new half or something similar. We, we've seen that come up in translation discussions in the past couple of years, and people on both sides have kind of questioned the veracity of the statement, the, the terminology, its usefulness, etc., so on. So it's, it, it's, it's been a thing that we've acknowledged is a part of Japanese culture, but it still doesn't fucking mean anything. Like, it's, it's trying to translate English slang terms to Japan. How do you even begin? You know, you, you're eventually yeah. going to have to replace it with something that makes sense to that culture. So it's, there are definitely benefits to making those kind of hard decisions, to not directly translating something, to giving the player a certain degree of understanding of the universe either through changing a round of certain words and phrases or changing some content to make more sense to the Western audience. And while there can be instances where it loses a certain degree of authenticity to its native country, we don't live in its native country. And there are going to be a lot of players who are going to be confused by the concepts that exist from that native country. Some things are definitely worth keeping, it, it's, it, but it needs to be said, there are elements that are just going to lose the player, and at the end of the day, you want to try and keep players as invested in your game for as long as possible, because if you make another one, they're going to buy the next one. That's how companies like Atlas have managed to survive as long as they have. They either make games that are so compelling that people want to keep playing them, or they make games that don't necessarily fall apart narratively. And we can see that Atlas has kind of learned that, you know, the direct translation hasn't been the best option because they've been starting to kind of loosen that up a little bit in the past few years. But there's still a point where some things just aren't going to make any sense to a Western audience, and you kind of need to make those changes because if you don't, you're going to be selling to a devoted, dedicated fan base of like 10,000 people. And I know that that's what some people do want, but that's not profitable for anybody. Speaking of Atlas, it's interesting to see their localization philosophies versus someone like Xseed, because if you notice with something like Persona, they tend to keep the uh, honorifics like Senpai and things like that at the end of sentences, where Xseed purposely doesn't. Like, they've stated that they felt that that was, I don't know if they said it exactly, but um, they, they felt it was kind of lazy localization to leave those in, rather than try to uh, change it to something that makes sense for a Western audience, because, you know, terms like senpai and coon and things like that don't really exist in our language, um, where, it, you know, it... it Japanese culture, something like that makes a whole lot of sense. So uh, I always found that that to be an interesting distinction between those two companies. Yeah, and it's it's hard to know which way to fall on that side of things because there are definitely benefits in both cases, right? From the Persona aspect of things, it, it does give the game sort of a Japanese flavor, which it does 
benefit the game to have that to a certain extent. And those respect terms can potentially be important for distinguishing rank and things of that nature. But on the mm -hmm. other hand, nobody in the Persona crew technically really has any kind of great authority over the other. So while, for example, Chie technically outranks Kanji, he'll generally call people, you know, so-and-so senpai, so-and-so senpai, because they are older than him. But, like, Yukiko calls Kanji, you know, Kanji-kun, even, like, right. which is a, a statement of equality. So it, it can get very confusing to... It, it's interesting to see how different people view one another in that respect, if you understand it. But in a lot of respects, I wouldn't necessarily say it's lazy so much as it is just needless. Because I feel like... Well, and I don't think in Persona they actually explain what those terms meant. Oh, no, they never do. They never do in Persona. That is that is not a thing that exists there. You have to go figure that out on your own. Yeah, see, if you're coming in fresh and you've never heard those terms before, you're going to be like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, it's very disconcerting. And even once you understand it, I, feel, I don't feel like it's lazy necessarily so much as it is that it kind of does work that you as the author as you as the translator, should be able to show in the way that the characters interact with one another. Kanji calls everybody above him at a certain level senpai because he respects them and appreciates what they've done for him. But Kanji, the character, through the words that are written and through the way that he speaks to others, already shows that. Mm -hmm. And all of the people who are above him just call him Kanji-kun. Like, they don't they don't give him a derogatory honorific to show that he's below them because they already respect him. But he's just going over the top with that to show, I appreciate what you've done for me. I respect you, even when he's, you know, I, except for Yosuke. Like, Yosuke, he mostly just wants to beat in the mouth. But <laughs> not unwarranted, of course. But the point... Most people do. Yeah, well. But the, the point of it is, is that the game gets that across well enough in the way that the dialogue itself is translated and in the inflection of the voice actors and actresses. You don't need that there in order to get it across. In a bad game, you would probably need it because people would understand, like, be able to take away from the usage of those particular terms how people feel about one another. But you don't need it in Persona. I wouldn't say it's lazy so much as it is that it's a good shorthand for showing how people treat one another and refer to one another, but it's just not necessary. And if you look at it, outside of Atlas, there aren't a lot of translation houses that really do that. No. I can't think of any other examples offhand. And Atlas doesn't really do it very much either anymore. Like, there would definitely be interest instances where that would be useful, but... Like, that doesn't happen in SMT4 Apocalypse, where you've got characters who are 15, 16, 17 years old, where those honorifics might be useful and worthwhile, and that doesn't come up at all during the game. Mm -hmm. One of the characters refers to your character as Master for, you know, a period of time, but nobody's calling each other Kun and San or anything of that nature. They just use the dialogue, even though they're characters who are in Tokyo. I don't remember if Devil Survivor really does that. I don't remember either, to be honest with you. I want to say if they do do that, it's not nearly as pervasive. And I would be interested to see if they continue to do that in Persona 5. 
because I really do think that that's kind of an indication that Atlas is loosening up on that shit a little bit. They kept it up with uh, Persona 4 spinoffs, though. Yeah. Or dancing all night and stuff. That Well, that might just be because that's already established in that universe, so it's very possible well, Persona yeah. 5 may do that as well. But they don't, they don't really do it as much in other games outside of that, which I think is interesting. Like, I think it's interesting that they that they really only adapted to that in the Persona franchise, and that outside of that, they mostly just go with standard conversational stuff, even though within those games, if the if the dialogue were still in Japanese, I'm fairly certain that you would hear the, the Sans and the Coons and everything else. Yep. Uh, I noticed that with, like, Yakuza... Um, I don't think that they use those terms in the subtitles, but when they speak the lines, because it's all uh, left in Japanese, you can definitely hear those terms being used. Yeah, it's, it's that's definitely a part of Japanese dialogue in general. So I think it's I think it's that most development houses just realize that the respect honorifics aren't really necessary in dialogue translation. But there was that period of time where Atlas went super direct translation happy, and that was mm -hmm. all you got. Like I don't, I don't think they really do that in uh, Tokyo Mirage Session. Now that I think about it, I didn't play that that long ago, and I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a really great year for games, so stuff kind of starts running together, unfortunately. But I distinctly do not remember them being San and Kun heavy in the text translation. Which I feel is kind of interesting as well. Yeah, I don't. But it, you know that could have been part of it. Could have been the Nintendo influence there too. Oh, I'm sure Atlas did the actual localization, but I think Nintendo was the publisher, so they probably had some say in that. I mean, it's very possible, and I'm not going to say that it's not. But I also feel like, to a certain extent like, Atlas is kind of changing the view on it. It could also be the influence of Sega, for all we know. But I just feel like... That's it's, true. I, I feel like it's interesting that that's just not a thing that they're doing anymore. Mm -hmm. And they may still stick with it for Persona, but again, it hasn't happened in SMT. It doesn't happen in Tokyo Mirage Sessions. And it's very possible that outside of the Persona series, which has kind of become known for it at this point, that they may not do it for other games going forward. It'll be interesting to see if they do it in Persona 5, though, or if they just make a clean break from it and go forward from there. But I feel like the like the more recent Personas all kind of connect to each other in a way, so there'd almost be consistency issue if they try to break away now, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, if they keep it in the Persona franchise, I don't, I don't care whether they keep that or not, honestly. It's just not really necessary, but yeah. if they kept it in there, it wouldn't be a bad thing. I think for the most part, we've kind of addressed that localization definitely has its place. So here's the harder question. Are there instances where content changing is useful? Where it's made the game better, are you saying? Not necessarily better, but where there's a benefit to doing it. Because, I mean, I can definitely think of instances where it's bad. Yakuza 3 as a key example. When they got rid of the hostess clubs? Yep. That was some weird shit. Like, going to the hostess clubs definitely has its oddities. You know, you have to pay X amount of money to spend time with a woman, and that can be odd. Well, yeah, that's a very Japanese thing, so I can kind of understand why they omitted that, because 
Western audiences really wouldn't understand that concept. Being that it's kind of a side attraction anyway, I, I guess I didn't mind it that much, but I could see why someone would look at that and think that that's a bad thing because it's, it's still cut content at the end of the day. Right, and not only that, like, part of the problem is is that you're telling a Yakuza story. You're telling a story about a Yakuza in Japan. So there's a certain amount of leeway that the game gets where you can kind of present these sorts of things and the player will understand this part of the ambience. But to me, I felt the bigger problem was how they addressed it because you would just, like, you would still have those girls in the game, but, like, they would just not be in the hostess club. You would just meet them at random. So it's like... Here's Kazuma Kiryu, famed Yakuza, hitting on a chick at the fucking Burger Mart. <laughs> really? <laughs> and it was it was weird the way that they actually instituted it. It was not a great handling of it. And while I understand that, yeah, it was definitely content that didn't make a whole lot of sense, the way that they chose to deal with it was just weird and dumb. And Sega, for the most part, seems to have accepted this because in the later games they've gone back to doing things the traditional way so that even if it's a little confusing to newcomers, it's not picking up a girl at the fucking Burger Mart. And I'm going to keep calling it that because that was a thing you actually had to do and imagine what kind of a weird creeper Cosmic Curio looks like hitting on a girl at a McDonald's. <laughs> like, who does that, honestly? I'm sure someone does. Yeah, and they're a weird creeper. <laughs> and if you're listening to this and you hit it, hit on girls at the McDonald's, I'm sorry, you're a weird creeper. Stop being a weird creeper, creeper. <laughs> but I mean, on the other side of things, it's there are definitely instances where, it, if it doesn't necessarily improve the experience, it at least makes more sense. Like, again, coming back to Tokyo Mirage Sessions, they changed all of the costumes around, but they also made the legal ages of all of the characters at least 18. Yep. And to me, like for a lot of people, they're like, oh, well, this needs to be perfectly intact. This needs to be the exact way that it was. And for me, I'm like, sexualizing 17-year-old girls is not a thing that's going to fly in the U.S. Even uh, people hold Exceed in high regards. And they even, when they brought uh, Senron Kagura over, uh, they just outright omitted the ages of the characters, even though it's quite obvious. I mean, they're all in high school, but... They didn't like explicitly say what their ages were, and some of them looked extremely young, even though they had ginormous breasts, you know, for the size of the body that they were rolling with. So, and honestly, I think changes like that are for the better anyway, because it's just, I don't know, a lot of it is a cultural thing, but I find that sort of thing weird, uh, and I suspect most people, um, that would be exposed to that game would find that sort of thing weird despite you know what the concept of the game itself might be so to me that's an improvement but i i realize not everybody would agree well i mean to be fair i i hate to i hate to bring it up this way but there's kind of the whole problem where we've seen that maybe there are some horrible people out there in the world like you know all of the people who were like super bummed out when Ariel Winter got her breasts reduced and you got into that awkward conversation of where they would be like, oh man, she was hotter before. Really? Really? She was hotter before. When she was 17, you fucking pervert? Yeah. 
And there's no good way that that conversation ends. But it's it's the thing is, is that that's kind of where my head goes when somebody says that they want these characters to be the appropriate age. Because, like, you know what? I like the characters in Persona 4, but I don't necessarily harbor perverse sexual lust for the characters in Persona 4 because they're fucking underage and that'd be weird. So even if you know that the characters in Tokyo Mirage Sessions are presented as underage, it's less concerning for the average person if they are, if they at least have that plausible deniability of, in the U.S., they're 18, so I can make her my waifu or whatever, and it's not creepy and weird. Whereas if you're sexually objectifying a 17-year-old, that's weird a little bit. Like, that that's... Definitely weird and definitely illegal in more than a few places, and it, it just makes you look like a weird creeper. And I mean, to be fair, it's not like we don't kind of sort of do that with our pop idols and whatnot, but again, it, it comes down to the fact that these characters are being presented in a certain way. They're being presented in a certain light. And I don't necessarily agree with it when, you know pop singer organizations present 17-year-olds as, like, sexual... Like, they, they, they present them in an adult way. But that's just a completely different sort of conversation. Whether or not that's okay, whether or not that's reasonable, is well outside of the scope of what we can do here. The point is, is that it's not perceived as reasonable or okay by society writ large in the U.S. So doing that in your game where you have a 17-year-old and they're dressing up in sexually provocative clothing and they're having pictures taken of themselves that are going to be put into a book that it's implied people are buying to jerk off to is awkward and uncomfortable and strange for the Western marketplace. Mm -hmm. And I know, again, some people are going to want that authenticity, but... That's not a good look, bro. It's not. And again, most publishers are not going to make their money back catering to that specific audience. Because if you, again, if, if, if you care about things being presented as they are, then, you know, go learn Japanese at that point. Because uh, localization, by definition, is, you know, adapting material for a specific audience so um it's not going to be one-to-one it never will be yeah and it's it's there are a lot of people who have said you know i won't buy a game if it's any content is changed and they make the argument that they would rather that the game not come out in the u.s than come out with cut content which is a incredibly selfish argument to make <laughs> uh, it, it really is it's it's very much i've been i've been playing more of nocturne recently and it's very much kind of one of those i i want to i want to say it's the masubi path but i don't remember for certain where it's it's just self-interest it's just interest in the self interest in everything has to be for me for my way i'm what matters and like it, it just shows a distinct amount of for lack of a better word, entitlement, where it's I want what I want 
I don't care what anybody else wants. I don't care if it would be keeping other people from experiencing a game because it isn't the exact way that I want it to be. I don't want it to come out and fuck everybody else. And it's like, here's the thing, okay? People were mad about the changes to Fire Emblem Fates. And granted, some of those changes were stupid. I'm not going to pretend that I unilaterally agree with the things that were changed in that game. There are probably a lot of people, some people who probably worked at Nintendo, who thought those changes were stupid and were overridden by people above them. But the game did move over a million units. It's their best-selling one yet. Yeah. And the thing is, going back to Tokyo Mirage Sessions, the sexual, if that game had been as sexualized as it was, with 17-year-olds presented as sex symbols in you know, skimpy clothing and things of that nature, that game would have been M for Mature. Tokyo Mirage Sessions, as it is now, only moved about 50,000 units in the U.S. Oh, seriously? Is that all? Yes. Which, wow. according to what I've seen, is not a failure for Atlas. I'm guessing because they didn't invest, like, Persona 4 money into translating it, so, you know, they didn't bring in a whole new voice cast or anything like that. It was just a straight translation, a straight localization. Yeah, they didn't have... Uh... They didn't have English voiceovers or anything either. Right, exactly. So they didn't lose any kind of money off of translating it. So for them, that was that was not a loss. It was probably more of a break-even as far as that goes. But here's the thing, right? Even if 10,000 people boycotted that game because it was edited, and, you know, based on the survey that was done not too long ago about, like, bringing DOA uh, X3 to the U.S., I would imagine that that number of people who boycotted it probably isn't very much above 10,000, honestly. If 10,000 people boycotted it, sure, that would have been an extra 10,000 sales, but if you bump that game up to M for Mature, how many people do you lose in that? Because I'm imagining that there were probably a bunch of people who only bought it because it was T for Teen. Yeah, the uh, Wii U audience is already pretty small, so I imagine they would do anything possible to widen that. Exactly. And it's it comes down to the fact of a lot of these games are edited to get them into the widest possible group of hands so that the games can become successful and then maybe less content can be edited down the road. Coming back to God Eater 2 as an example. That game had some blood spray edited out of the death sequences for the origami in that game. And I mean, I've played both versions, and the change is not significant. The, the, the screens still get splattered with blood when you bite into one of them. It's a little bit more grotesque in the Japanese version, but not significantly so. And that was the only change they really had to make to get that game to T for Teen. That massively expands the amount of hands that you can get that game into. And for an untested franchise, for an unproven franchise, let's say, like God Eater 2, they need that. You know, the original God Eater, God's Eater, as, uh, as it was called, did not do especially well in the U.S. It did okay, but you're releasing, this, you're releasing that game on the PlayStation Portable at a time period when in the U.S. nobody gave a shit about that handheld. It, it didn't do the kind of numbers that they needed it to. So they brought it out for the PlayStation 4 and the Vita, but they're also looking to try and get that game into as many hands as possible to see if they can make that game a success and have it be, you know, a big money maker. And they invested money in that. Let's not kid ourselves. 
there's full-on English voice acting in that game. They brought it out on Steam, too. Mm-hmm. So it's, you need that game to be in that T-for-teen wheelhouse in order to get it into as many hands as possible. And you know what? Going back to, you know, your point on Criminal Girls 2, I can kind of understand how the people that that game is aimed at are going to feel a certain way about that game. But here's the reality. Nipponichi would not be translating the second game if the first game wasn't a success. If they hadn't made that money off the first game, they wouldn't see the second game as being financially viable. Also, the first game, as you said, was edited down, too, in much the same way that this one is going to be. Yes and no. While all of the changes oh, really? that happened in the first game are going to be applied to the second game, the pink fog is going to be there, the voices are being taken out, the one key difference that was expressed in the develop in the devlog that Nipponichi released is that in Criminal Girls 2, a lot of the acts are portrayed as being more obviously non-consensual. Gotcha. The game goes out of its way to kind of make it more of a bondage sadomasochism thing, which is kind of a weird situation to get into with any game, really. I really don't know how the ESRB would have responded to anything that seemed like it was a weird control issue in gaming, sexually. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if they're prepared to deal with that kind of thing, to be honest. There really hasn't been a lot coming down the pipeline that would have anything remotely close to that that I can think of. Right, and it's... I don't feel like the ESRB is wholly equipped to make a determination on the complexities of that situation. I certainly don't think that a lot of the people who are weighing in on whether or not this game should have that are really equipped to have a adult, complex conversation about that topic. So, honestly, the smartest thing they could have done was cut that content. Because if that had been kept in, I guarantee you that game would have been made AO. Yep. And you're not seeing that game on the Vita if that game is made AO. Like, if you're lucky, that game is going to be on PC, and it's not going to be on Steam, it's not going to be on GOG, it's going to be sold exclusively as a digital code through Nipponichi's site, and maybe, like, one or two other anime-slash-hentai-game websites. And if you think that game is going to make money, you're a fucking crazy person. One thing people don't realize, too, is when they say, you know, such and such cut content isn't going to be in the game, I'm not going to buy it, and it turns out that the game does not do well, the publisher isn't going to come back and say, well, the game didn't do well because we cut this content. No, they're going to say this game didn't do well because people clearly don't want this game. So, really, the only thing that you're doing by not supporting the game is by ensuring that no games like it are going to come down the pipeline. Because... Wasn't that long ago that games of this nature just did not get released. Um, there's more niche titles now than there ever was before, which is awesome. But unfortunately, you know, at the cost of getting some of those, you know, some material is going to be removed, uh, for better or for worse. And that's just that just kind of comes with the territory until, you know, culturally we get to a point where, you know, anything and everything can release as is. But I don't see that getting to that point for quite some time. Right, and it's, it's, that's, I think, the major problem that comes out of all of this, is that even if you hate localization, even if you hate content changing, 
I mean, there's definitely arguments, as we've made already, as to why localization can be very important and as to why content changing can be important. But the most important lesson of all is this. Like five years ago, we weren't seeing a lot of these, as little as five years ago, we weren't seeing a lot of these niche titles. Bandai Namco was not willing to take the hit on experimenting with niche anime-infused games that they had developed and released in Japan. Uh, Sega was not willing to take the hit and try to experiment with that sort of stuff. We weren't seeing as many games as we could have. And if you want to go back even further, there was a time when Atlas was not able to release basically every single game that they developed. You know? And it wasn't all that long ago. We live in a time where you can get your hands on practically any game that is coming out in Japan within six months to a year, in a lot of cases, in the U.S., with nominal changes. You know, can can you imagine we would have ever gotten a Criminal Girls game, or Gal Gun Double Piece, or Valkyrie Drive, or Psycho Pass, or, you know fucking corpse party for the 3ds for christ's sake can you imagine any of this shit would have come out in the u.s like five years ago not at all and it was even oh it's been now 13 years just over 13 years ago there didn't exist fire emblem in the west there's a few other franchises like that too that just didn't exist back then that exist now yeah and i mean we, we also have to remember, like, in the PlayStation era, Sony was consistently refusing shit for content, you know? Um, 1999, we lost out on Persona 2 Innocent Sin because Sony rejected it for content. Homosexuality and Hitler, I believe. They rejected Shadow Tower Abyss because they felt that the game was too violent and also too niche-oriented, which is probably not an argument that you're ever going to hear at this point from developers no. but still how long how long was it until we got a fucking sakura wars game for christ's sake i think the only one that we got was what 10 uh 12 when wait when did that come out no that was like five years ago or something yeah it was uh sakura wars 5 so long my love i think that's the only one we've gotten yeah because sony refused to have any more of them released on their consoles so you know whoops which is sad because i think nis made a uh play for the psp ones and they got turned away yeah though to be fair i mean it's not like you know the psp had that many years left on its lifespan at that point but well still, still. yeah live and learn it's but yeah that was uh in 2010 six years ago that came out and how long had people been fighting to try and get that game to the u.s any of those games to the mm -hmm. u.s years it's we live in a time now where so long as there's somebody who's willing to back the funding of the game get it translated get it released you could see just about fucking anything if there was a sakura wars game available on the vita i imagine somebody would be trying to get it translated because again the reasons that that game was rejected in 2010 okay psychopaths and steins gate just came out back to back within like a year of one another that doesn't hold up anymore mm-hmm more and more people are bringing these games stateside, and seeing them get released is opening up the floodgates for more and more of these games to come out. Sakura Wars paved the way for games like Steins Gate and Psycho Pass and 
uh, that fucking franchise that Eileen loves with the samurais that I can't think of the name of. Uh, ha Hakuoki? There, there, you, there you go. Hakuoki, yeah. It, it opened up the door for all of these games to start coming to the consoles, which is a big fucking deal. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that the closest that we got to dating simulators was Thousand Arms and Mass Effect. And now Persona. <laughs> yeah, and, and Persona 4, 3 and 4. And now we've got actual full-on visual novels coming out on the consoles, and everybody's cool with it. You know, it, it wasn't that long ago that we were not getting a lot of these fan service -y sorts of games, and now we're getting, again... Valkyrie Drive, Galgun, Sakura War, or I'm sorry, um, fucking... Senran Kagura? Senran Kagura, you know. <clears throat> these games are important. They need to be released so that we can eventually open up the market for more of them. And I understand that some of these games have to be changed in post in order to make them viable as sales pieces. And I understand that for some people that that sucks. You know? It's not great when you see content edited out of a game that you want to play. Nobody likes that. Absolutely. But here's the thing. I am glad that we got Persona, even in the edited, hacked-up, weird-ass condition that we did, because if Atlas hadn't brought that game to the U.S., we would have never gotten Persona 4 and Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse. Not to mention we got a more proper uh, version of it on the PSP years later. Yeah, it's still not a good game, but glad that we got the, the correct version, I guess. I'm sorry, the first Persona is just not a good game. It's just not. I liked it, but yeah, I would I would not recommend it to somebody now. Oh yeah, no, I, I love Persona for what it is. I think it's a great experience, but I would never recommend it to anybody. And I think the single biggest condemnation I can lay against it is that uh, when I live-streamed the game over the course of two weeks eventually the entire audience said, can you please stop playing this game? It's fucking boring. <laughs> and like, that was, that was the first time that anybody actively vocalized that they did not want to see me play a game anymore. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's without Persona, we would not have all the games that we have now. You know? Without Senran Kagura, we wouldn't have like a lot of these heavily sexualized games that we're getting now. And I believe me, I'm totally fine with the fact that there's, like, half-naked anime titties in video games. I don't give a fuck. Absolutely. Bring that shit out. The thing is, is that if we spend all of our time harping about the stuff that's missing from the games, the content that was cut that makes these games impossible to bring out or impossible to bring out in a way that they could make money, you're missing the forest for the trees. I get that you want what you want, and if that's the case, maybe just import it. But if you're not supporting these games, the publishers are not going to say, well, we need to translate these games in a way that it's exactly intact to what these fans want. They're just not going to release them. The way that you get the games that you want is by buying the stuff that comes out to show that there's a significant market presence for these games and then showing the developers that the smartest thing they can do is take those chances now that they have an established entrenched fan base because let's be honest here all right idea factory sat down and said in no uncertain terms we're not going to edit our games anymore we're just not going to bring out stuff that needs editing 
Editing's not cheap. Nobody wants to edit these games because that shit costs money and time that a lot of these developers just don't have. If you show them, I don't want these games to be edited, but I will support you because I know you don't want to edit them either, given enough time, you can eventually get to that point where these people are a media powerhouse and they can say, all right, we're going to start pushing back against this shit. Now we have the money to have a protracted battle with the ESRB. Because I guarantee you, if Nipponichi had the money to have that long battle with the, the ESRB, they'd fucking do it. These companies need that money in order to be able to sustain themselves. They need that money to go into those wars, to find those hills to die on, so that they can get us the games in the condition that we want them. If your response to that is, I'm not going to buy that game because it's edited down, all you're saying is, I don't care why you're bringing this game out. All I want is what I want, and I don't want to help you get to a point where you can give me what I want. You have to do everything. I refuse to help you. Fuck you. And if that's truly the way you feel, that's fine. But you're part of the problem. Yep. I'd also put the, uh, the dual voiceover crowd into that camp as well. If we're talking about entitlement as far as localizations, they're right up there too. <laughs> The whole, if there's no Japanese track, I'm not buying it. Because guess what? Persona 5 doesn't have a Japanese track. Yeah, you know what? I'll be honest on that one. I don't mind what they did with... I don't remember which game it was. I want to say it was one of the Persona 4 games where they had the Japanese track as DLC. I might be wrong on that, but somebody offered the Japanese audio as DLC. I think it was one of the fighting games, if I remember correctly. It might be. I honest to God don't remember. But that's not a bad idea, honestly. You know? Because I, I think the I think the biggest hindrance to adding, you know, that in there is, number one, the, the laws regarding, like, use of people's voices and shit in Japan is just so fucked. Uh, I know uh, Xseed talked extensively about this, too. So it's one thing to get the rights to use it, but um, also, sometimes the cost of obtaining that is like just astronomical especially if like the actors that were involved in some of the voice acting are really well known so uh to your point if they started adding that as like a paid dlc i i suspect some people would frown upon that like you know as they would look at it as like cut content being sold back to you in, in a way but at the same time it's like you know if, if if it would ruin your experience not to have that, I mean, what, they charge like five, ten bucks or something? You know, if it's something that meant a lot to you, it's still going to be cheaper than importing and a lot easier than learning the language. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it's, especially with Persona 4, that's a big deal. Persona 4 uh, didn't have the Japanese track either, if I recall. Oh, yeah, it did not. And there's definitely a reason why they would not have done that. And this is, I'm going to give a shout out to f friend of the podcast, Ms. DTN, for kind of cluing me in on this sort of thing. Do you remember when they did the survey in Japan for who was the most popular character from the Persona franchise? I vaguely recall that. Okay. Do you remember who was the number one character in that? Uh-uh. Yosuke Hanamura. That's a surprise. <laughs> it was. It was. So I asked the question, 
what the fuck is wrong with Japan? And and D explained to me, they don't give a shit about Yosuke. He's voiced in Japan by a gentleman by the name of Shotaro Morikubo, who is like one of their most popular fucking voice actors over there. Oh, so he's like their version of Troy Baker. Except people actually like obsess about this guy. Uh, I mean, maybe people obsess about Troy Baker. You know, if Troy Baker's listening to this, I think you're great. That's not my point. My point is, is that voice actor culture, uh, seiyu culture, I want to say it's called, in Japan is really fucking obsessive. Like, they love this guy over there. And so Yosuke wins the popularity contest because he's voiced by this really popular guy that everybody likes. Conversely, imagine having to pay him to bring his voice work to the U.S. So that, like, you know, that that group of people can be appeased. That's what I'm saying. I, I bet that's probably more than uh, Atlas USA's entire budget. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's like, I can understand that expectation for some games, right? Like, you know, if Sega releases a game, they're still a fairly big publishing house. I can understand that you might expect that the Japanese dialogue would be in there. And, you know, for, for Sega, for the most part, if they bother doing an English translation, they usually try to keep the Japanese dialogue in there. You know, because it's cheaper for them to just translate the Japanese, to just bring over the Japanese dialogue than it is to hire voice actors. But from a localization perspective, it can often be better to have the localized voice actors instead of having to utilize the Japanese dialogue. So there's there's a give and take on both sides there. Plus, they found that the... Uh... Uh, English. If a game has English dub in it, it sells better. Oh yeah, especially in this day and age, because you know, back in back in the '90s and the 2000s, you know, dubs were terrible. Assuming they had them at all, I I'm of the mindset since you and I both we kind of grew up in an era where you read all of the dialogue. Yeah. So even if the uh, it doesn't matter what dub I get, whether it's Yakuza or it's all Japanese or uh, you know, it's Final Fantasy. It's all, English voice acted. I can usually read faster than the way, you know, than they can talk. So I ended up like, I'll read it and then skip it real quick so I can get through the dialogue faster. So for me, I don't give a shit. Oh, but... yeah. But even go back to go back to our anime, you know, like when when I was growing up, anime dubs were unilaterally the, the fucking dirt worst. Yeah. One of my one of my favorites, and this may just be you know an old wives' tale for all the difference that it makes, but there was a voice actor for Tenchi Muyo who did the Tenchi's voice for years and years. He may still be doing it now. This guy Kermit, I swear to God, that's his name. <laughs> and and he was fucking terrible, fucking terrible at it. I'm sorry, bro. You were bad, and you knew you were bad. The story goes, somebody asked him at a convention, why do you keep doing this voice if you're so fucking bad at it? And his response was, <laughs> seriously, his response was, they keep paying me. <laughs> and, I mean, that's kind of a good response. <laughs> it is, and I'm not going to say that it's not, but I, I'm, I'm not judging the guy for doing it. You make that fucking money, man. Good on you. But you're bad at it. And it's... We, we still see that even today to a certain extent, right? Stunt casting. You know, I was playing through Sonicomi last night on the live stream that I do, and I was playing with the Japanese voice, and people were complaining about the voice work for the Japanese version. And I said, you know, 
I get that there are parts of it that are bad, but the English version is also not good because that's stunt casted. They got Jess Negri to do the voice for Sonico, and she is not equipped to be a voice actor for video gaming. But by and large, a lot of our voice work in this day and age is really good. I mean, sure, you're probably going to see Yuri Lowenthal and Nolan North somewhere in practically every game that you play, but we have that unique opportunity where there are a lot of really fucking great talents doing it now. Whereas back in the 80s and the 90s, it was trash. Like, the first good dub I heard for an anime, I want to say, was Martian's successor to Desco, and that was, like, what, mid-90s at that point? And just imagine how many terrible dubs had come out in the 10, 15 years prior to that. Jesus Christ. Well, the nice thing about modern gaming versus anime is you can usually silence the voices if they're really terrible. Like, there's only a, a few games that have come out fairly recently where I heard the dubbing and I had to go, no, that's that's awful, that's getting turned off, would be like... Arkrise Fantasia on the Wii, that was fucking atrocious. Well, I mean, it's it's you know nothing is ever going to top Chaos Wars. Oh yeah, that that was probably by far the worst. Like seriously, go on YouTube and search both of those games, and you'll get a good laugh. Uh, I think with Chaos Wars, it, I think the story goes that like the sound engineer had like his nieces or nephews like do the voices or something like that. Because, like, you can hear it in their voice. They give zero shits about what's going on right now. Yeah, and they have, like, adults being voiced by somebody who sounds like a 10-year-old. Yep, exactly. But it's, it's the, the point of it is, is that we're at a point now where voice acting has evolved. Voice acting is great. Voice acting is outstanding in the U.S., mostly. If a company hires bad voice actors, that's on that company. But it's, that's the exception now not the norm yep and that's great that's awesome but we kind of don't need to exist in this world anymore where it has to be japanese dialogue or nothing because the english dialogue is is fucking rad it's awesome we we have great stuff available to anybody who wants to listen to it so it's it's we're kind of at that point now where if you're the purist, I understand where you're coming from, but it might just be better at that point to learn Japanese, or at the very least to support these companies, but express to them that you really want that Japanese dialogue, so that once they have that kind of money available, that they can finance that shit. Because that's not cheap. Yeah, It's going to be a shitload of money for somebody to bring Japanese dialogue over to the U.S. Especially, again, if you're in a case where you're doing something like Persona 4 where they hire an extremely popular Japanese voice actor to do a role, and then they gotta pay that guy again in order to bring his dialogue over to the U.S. It happens a lot with the music, too. Um, I know this is more pervasive in, like, anime. Like, sometimes they have to cut the openings and the endings because of the... Uh licensing around the songs that they use, but uh, I've seen it happen in games, too, where um, some of the music they can't use. Yeah, I don't. I haven't seen it in a while. 
Um, and I want to say the last time I can distinctly remember seeing it was Digital Devil Saga. Though I don't know if they did that as an aesthetic choice or because of licensing issues. Yeah, it's hard to know. Because I don't, I don't think that the Atlas in-house band existed in the condition that it does now at that point. But to be fair, the Etro anime song that they chose for the intro was fucking rad. And I'm glad that they did it because it was a great song. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I haven't seen it as a matter of cost in a while, honestly. So I don't, I, that may be going away. But it wouldn't surprise me if we still saw that every now and again uh, outside of the anime world. Because I think most companies are multinational companies like a Square Enix, where they're going to make sure to license that as a multinational release. So you're going to get your Utada Hikaru song uh, attached to Kingdom Hearts or whatever, because they know that they're bringing that game to the U.S., and their U.S. and their Japanese divisions are working in sync. And we may, we may, like, again, with Atlas, that's not as big of a deal because they just make their own music in-house, so it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Like, you may still see that with some companies, but a lot of these companies are just Western extensions of Japanese development houses. You know, Exceed is just the Western branch of Marvelous. I know a lot of the companies have started actively publishing their own stuff, like Nipponichi is synchronized between their Eastern and Western branches, uh, but they were publishing the Idea Factory games for a while before Idea Factory went out on their own. Yep. And I think it's interesting that a lot of these companies are kind of starting to see that it's profitable to release their own games over here. So, in that respect, I kind of sort of wish that, again, people would understand that there is benefit in supporting these companies when they're trying to do these sorts of things because the more money you dump into an idea factory or an Iponichi or an arc system works or an axis or an exceed the more money they have to try and push that envelope a little harder and the last thing i want to do is see one of those companies branch off and try to publish games in the u.s and then get fucked for it because they can't reasonably publish the games 100% intact without making them virtually unsellable. Right. Yeah, none of these games are million sellers by any means. We're talking like not even 100,000 copies in a lot of cases. We're talking like tens of thousands uh, in a lot of cases with a few doing well enough to, you know, do like a like Fire Emblem uh, some of those will move like 200,000, Xenoblade 200,000, but some of like these smaller companies, we're talking like way less than that. Oh yeah, again, like even a bigger company like Atlas sees, you know, 50,000 off of Tokyo Mirage Sessions, 100,000 probably worldwide off the top of my head. Uh, a lot of these companies are probably only seeing like 10, 20, 30,000 sales, and that's good for them, but every little bit helps. And the more that we're buying into those games, even if they're not the way we want them to be, the more money those companies have to try and push back and get the games to us as intact as they possibly can be. I think uh, Tokyo Mirage Sessions tanked in Japan, even. I want to say I saw something that said that that hit around forty to 50000 in Japan as well. But yeah, it probably was not a big seller for them, unfortunately. 
of course, there's less Wii U's. A lot of way less Wii U's out there relative, uh, you know, to the market than what we have too. So that was probably a big factor. Oh, I'm sure. But I don't know. I feel like we've kind of mined from this about as much as we're probably going to get. Probably. So, I feel that's as good a place as any to wrap it up. Uh, I do want to say thank you to Mr. Sean Madsen for joining me on the podcast today. I do appreciate it, and hopefully we can do another one in the future. Definitely. But um, let's just go through all of the plug stuff real quick here. If you liked what you listened to today, feel free to check us out over on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and basically anywhere where podcasts are hosted. Just search for Neo Kobe Pizza. Uh, like it. Sign up. Subscribe. Let us know what you think. Leave us comments. Seriously, everything that you leave us helps, and I do very much appreciate it. Uh, if you want to follow along with what's going on here, for me personally, you can follow me over at Twitter at MarkBWriting and on Facebook at MarkBWritingHome. And Sean, where can they follow you at? DHGF Madsen. And where would that be? On Twitter. There you go. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. But that should just about do it for this week. Uh, join us next time when our topic will be Five Reasons All of the Food in Japanese Games Should Just Be Hamburgers. On behalf of Sean Madsen, this is Mark B. saying, Stay safe out there, junkers. <laughs>